It is time for Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070. Joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. Happy New Year's Eve. Thank you very much. Uh, sadly, I'm not in St. Bart's. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Although, all I, I must say is that perhaps the former Minister of Finance in Ontario might be on a plane back there at the moment, given the, uh, <laughs> what just transpired. I was just going to say, you know, you're not supposed to uh, to let people go over the telephone, but it may have been more courteous in this particular set of circumstances. I suppose we'll leave that to others to uh, <laughs> discuss over time. Uh, on our docket today, the Supreme Court of Canada, I'm reading here, granting leave to appeal is directly from a Supreme Court trial decision. It has to do with records and privacy. Help us understand this this issue, Michael. Yes, there are a few things that are interesting about this case. Um, first of all, the uh, way in which this case is going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada is, is a bit uh, uh, different than how things would usually get there. And then the substance of it is also interesting. First of all, in terms of how this case, it's a BC uh, case out of New Westminster, is going to the Supreme Court of Canada, it skipped the Court of Appeal which is interesting. Hmm. Typically, cases would, if they're going to the Supreme Court of Canada, you'd have a trial decision, and then there could be an appeal to the British Columbia Court of Appeal, and from there, if you could get leave or permission, you'd be able to go on to the Supreme Court of Canada. But this one skips the middle step, the Court of Appeal. And how can that be? Uh, well, the answer to that is that the particular decision dealt with a what would be called sort of an interlocutory issue, like a procedural issue in a case that didn't necessarily determine the outcome of the case. Mm. Um, and so you can imagine, let's imagine a circumstance where um, one, uh, one side uh, makes an application, succeeds on the application, but then um, uh, loses on the trial itself, right? Yes. It would mean that the other side would have really no mechanism to appeal that earlier procedural decision because they won ultimately, right? Okay. So if the okay. Crown gets a conviction, for example, it couldn't then go and say, well, I want to appeal the conviction. You got what you asked for, but, you know, you disagree with a, a procedural ruling. And hmm. so the Supreme Court Act allows for, in usually rare circumstances, uh, an appeal on that kind of an issue. And so that's how it is that the case you're about to talk about is going to be heard by the Supreme Court of Canada, having never been considered by the Court of Appeal. Hmm. Um, so that's an interesting procedural wrinkle. Now, the issue in the case is also an interesting one, um, and it's an issue that arose as a result of some relatively recent, in uh, December of 2018, amendments to the criminal code dealing with the prosecution of sexual assault and other related sexual offenses. Yes. And they were amendments which were precipitated by the Gian Gomeshi case. Hmm. And you think back to the Gian Gomeshi case, one of the things that occurred there um, was that there were uh, email uh, messages uh, that the complainants had sent to uh, Mr. Gomeshi, uh, which the defense very effectively used to cross-examine the complainants and get them to acknowledge that they had intentionally misled the police uh, and ultimately led the judge to conclude that the complainants in that case had effectively, essentially, intentionally lied to the court when they gave their evidence in chief. And they were a large part of why Mr. Gomeshi was acquitted. The judge said, I can't believe these people. They've lied to the police. They've lied to court. And I can tell that because of contradictory things they said in these email messages. Um, that produced some controversy uh, because people, uh, or some argued that, and the government at the time argued that, well, look, uh, this might discourage sexual assault complainants from 
coming forward uh, if they might be cross-examined on uh, things they might think were private, like their email communications. Yes. Uh, and so that led to a series of amendments, one of which was the subject of this procedural application. And the particular amendment re- purports to require that um, if the defense wishes to use any form of record that contains personal information for which there might be an expectation of privacy, the defense would need to ask the judge for permission to use it at least seven days in advance, subject to the judge deciding that less time could be allowed. Mm-hmm. But then the material would be provided to the complainant and their counsel and to Crown uh, for the judge to determine whether the material can be used. Now, when you think about that, the challenge that arises is one identified by uh, the trial judge here, this was Madam Justice Duncan, and she concluded that the danger of the complainant's evidence may be tailored, consciously or unconsciously, is not illusionary. Uh, the, this is why witnesses are almost inevitably excluded from the courtroom until they give their evidence. Yes. So the problem the judge identified here is one that I think should be uh, apparent to anyone, which is if you tell somebody in advance, hey, by the way, <laughs> you said a bunch of contradictory things in your diary, email messages, letters, whatever it might be, uh, you know, uh, and you tell the person about that a week before they testify in court, well, guess what? Their, their evidence is, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, very likely to change, to conform with that information. Yes. And so the, the problem there is that, you know, this case was a, a jury case. The jury would then have no idea that potentially that the complainant has told a, you know, had a completely different version of events that contradicted what they had said in their letters, emails, diary records, and various things. And one of the ways that uh, we try to avoid wrongfully convicting people um, is to allow them to be confronted, complainants and other complainants, with contradictory things. Hey, you say this happened, but you say something completely different in your diary, notes, records, whatever it might be. Yes. And the trial judge said in her uh, reasons here, finding that section to be unconstitutional, that privacy rights must yield to the need to avoid convicting the innocent. That's one of the things that she made reference to in her judgment. Mm. Uh, The Crown argued that, well, you know, even though that might, uh, you might have that effect if you tell somebody about things in advance, they argued that, for example, people might find things out in some other way. Uh, That that argument didn't uh, carry the day, obviously, at trial. The fact that there could be other things that would lead to a person being tipped off as to inconsistent things they might have said uh, in the past wasn't a, a justification for uh, permitting this. So what the trial judge did is she found that um, the requirement for seven days advance notice to the complainant is was unconstitutional because it was interfering with the constitutional uh, rights of the accused. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, um, she adopted a, a procedure by reading that seven-day requirement out that you could have the complainant testify without being tipped off about their inconsistent emails or diary entries or whatever it might be. And then you could have a judge assess whether that material uh, can be properly used. And that way, uh, the uh, complainant wouldn't be tipped off and you wouldn't have the risk of their evidence being changed. Uh, it would be too late in the sense that they've already committed themselves to whatever story they've told in chief. And so that's what the trial judge did with it. And that's what the uh, Crown is trying to reverse uh, by going to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, Those particular provisions, uh, interestingly, they were found to be 
constitutionally permissible in Ontario and Nova Scotia, but were struck down or found to be unconstitutional in British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon. And so the fact that there are these inconsistent decisions about whether that requirement to give advanced notice to everyone before using a record in that kind of a case would be one of the reasons why the Supreme Court of Canada uh, granted leave or permission to go there uh, to argue that point. And so that's how it is that that procedural point that originated with the Giangameshi case um, is going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada without having first traveled through the, the Court of Appeal. How is it that inconsistent findings were made by courts in different provinces in the first place? Are not courts, even at the lower levels, bound by findings in other provinces on similar matters? Like, wouldn't they have to yield to that, uh, what is it, stare decisis? That's a great question. The way it works is that uh, courts are bound by decisions of higher courts, but only in the same hierarchy, basically. And so in British Columbia, you would have the provincial court, then you'd have the B.C. Supreme Court, and then you would have the Court of Appeal. Uh, And judges of uh, above that, the Supreme Court of Canada sits above all of the provinces. But the, let's say, the British Columbia Supreme Court would not be bound by a decision of, let's say, the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. Hmm. They're only bound by... Uh, higher courts that are sort of above them in their own hierarchy. Um, and so um, I don't know what a military example of that would be, but perhaps, uh, you know, an order from a superior officer in the army to a, a army <laughs> a member of a lower rank would be binding, but not an order from somebody in the Navy. <laughs> right? Okay, interesting. You know, there's somebody, somebody at the top of the pyramid, that's the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, and decisions from other provinces, of course, can be influential or persuasive, yes. you know, you can say, look, you know, this other court, uh, the same fact pattern came to this conclusion. Look, here's how the judge did it. Uh, you know, please do the same thing here, often persuasive, yes. but they're nothing more than that. Hmm. Um, and so uh, you do wind up with circumstances in this case and others where you've got inconsistent decisions in different provinces. And that's one of the reasons why the Supreme Court of Canada might decide to grant leave to sort out um, those inconsistent decisions. Yeah. Um, and so that was one of the reasons why uh, the Supreme Court of Canada uh, allowed uh, or granted leave to go there. And that's an interesting thing, too. You, you can't just go, except in rare circumstances, directly to go to the Supreme Court of Canada as of right. You can't just say, I'm bound and determined, and I'm <laughs> really litigious, and so I insist upon going there. Indeed. Ordinarily, you need to get their permission or leave to go there, because they would otherwise be utterly and totally overwhelmed with cases from all across the country of various determined people that really, really want to go there. Yeah. There's an exception to that where you get a, a dissent from a court of appeal judge. There can be limited circumstances where you can go to the Supreme Court of Canada as of right. Uh, but uh, I don't, it would appear that they often don't like those cases too much, and so you often wind up with decisions on those kind of cases from them that say things like, uh, we dismiss the appeal for substantially the reasons of the majority of the Court of Appeal. Uh-huh. Thank you. Right? We, we're not really committing ourselves. We're just saying we agree with that decision. So generally you need to get permission. Uh, here it's the unusual permission skipping a step. Interesting. Let's take our break. Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers continues right after this. Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers taking us through the latest uh, current affairs in the legal world where the wheels of justice never stop turning, Michael. What happens when someone is on a cash or I think it's called a surety bail and they breach their conditions of release? 
Yeah, I mean, and this uh, one of the important uh, contexts for this is that unlike in the U.S., where you'll routinely hear of people being released on bail in various large amounts of money, right, which has the effect of essentially releasing the poor on, or releasing the rich on bail and keeping the poor in jail. Indeed, um, in Canada, happily, that's not the norm. Uh, ordinarily, judicial interim release in Canada doesn't simply involve, you know, piling up a bunch of cash and going free. Um, we do things like monitor people on uh, release with bail supervisors, this kind of thing, rather than just uh, letting rich people go home. Yes. Uh, but in some circumstances in Canada, um, release orders can include uh, a financial component, uh, either with the deposit of cash uh, which uh, has traditionally been used uh, in particular where you have somebody who uh, doesn't live in the area, um, or you can have circumstances where a person is released on what's called surety bail, and the surety bail involves a responsible person in the community who is ensuring the good conduct and the attendance of the accused person, uh, and surety bail would ordinarily be set, and it used to have to be set, but now it's optional, um, in an amount of money. And the idea there is that if the person that you're acting as a surety for doesn't turn up, right, or doesn't follow the conditions that they were released on, yes. you as the surety are on the hook for that amount of money. So you're kind of, you're incentivized to make sure you're doing a good job supervising. Okay. So those are different ways in which money can be involved with bail in Canada. Uh, but then an issue arises, and it was considered in a recent uh, uh, BC Provincial Court decision uh, from just a few days ago, what do you do when somebody deposits money, right, or has mm-hmm. a surety who's sort of on the hook for the money, mm-hmm. and then breaches their bail conditions, right? How does that how does that work? Yeah. And the way that works is that it's not automatic. The uh, crown needs to make uh, an application uh, to take the money, right? If the money was deposited, they're applying to keep the money, mm-hmm. um, or if it was a surety, for example, they're applying to force the surety to actually pony up and pay, right, because the person didn't turn up or didn't follow their conditions. And when that happens, when there's that kind of an application, uh, there's then what's called a show cause hearing to determine what ought to happen with the money. And effectively, it creates a reverse onus, which requires the accused person or the surety to justify why the money ought not to be simply forfeited to the crown, right? Because after all, the person breached their bail, right? Mm. Um, And so in the case of a surety, there would be considerations, including things like, you know, how diligent was the surety? You know, what was their means? Were they coerced? This kind of thing. Like, let's say you had a a person who was acting as a surety who did everything they could to try to get the person to court, right? Um, Including, you know, phoning the police, checking on them and doing all sorts of things. But, you know, they just escaped, right? And didn't turn up you would probably, in that case, be successful in persuading a judge that the amount of money set for the surety shouldn't be paid if you had a very diligent person who was doing everything they could but just didn't succeed in getting the person to the courthouse on time. Yes. Um, But uh, the particular case that was just decided, it was one which involved a man who had 50 previous convictions. Um, He had multiple charges, and he eventually persuaded a judge to release him uh, on the deposit of $5,000 in cash, and then he allegedly went out and breached yes. <laughs> the conditions that he was generously released on. Uh, the judge, uh, one of the judges involved, described, uh, as Judge Blake, uh, now retired, uh, described uh, the 
uh, individual as somebody who uh, breached the conditions in, quote, spectacular fashion <laughs> and paid no regard to the release order. Uh, not, not, not heeding the warnings of the judge who released them. Uh, and it was somebody who had uh, a previous history of um, you know, 50 previous convictions, including numerous breach of probation, breaches of recognizance, and was described as a pattern of disrespect for the administration of justice. And so in that circumstance, even though there was evidence that keeping the $5,000 uh, would present a serious hardship for his family, yes. uh, and that the money represented uh, joint savings of the accused person and his spouse, nonetheless, <laughs> with all of that context, uh, the uh, judge found that uh, the accused had not shown cause why uh, the money shouldn't be forfeited and pointed out that uh, in order for uh, that kind of bail to be effective, uh, you need to have an expectation that if you don't do what's required of you, uh, you're actually going to lose the money you deposited. And so that's what that's what happened there. <laughs> no no $5,000 back for the spectacular uh, spectacular fashion of breaching. So, <laughs> I was just the money. <laughs> I was. I was just going to say. I'm, I'm always struck when uh, reading through these decisions with the uh, the restraint and the subtlety that is exercised with uh, written reasons produced by uh, the courts. So to see spectacular fashion spelled out in a in a court decision. Um. Yeah. I I can just imagine. I can just imagine. <laughs> That will be, you will not get your money back. No, no. Um, I'm seeing our next story is interesting. It's an appeal of a speeding ticket considered by the B.C. Supreme Court, and it reminds us of what the law is with respect to evidence collected by radar devices. Yes, indeed. And I thought this was worth mentioning because, uh, frankly, speeding tickets are one of the uh, ways in which uh, if somebody's going to have any experience with the uh, justice system, uh, probably the, the sort of way that an ordinary person might wind up in that position, right? Yes. Uh, and so this case was also unusual because it was a uh, appeal to the B.C. Supreme Court. The fellow was uh, convicted of speeding uh, and then decided to appeal it on to the B.C. Supreme Court. And so we've wound up with this uh, brand-new uh, reasoned decision. Uh, just came out on the 29th. Um, setting out uh, some of the law concerning the use of uh, evidence about radar devices. Um, and this was the uh, case involved a police officer using a radar device. And I must say, I always get a kick out of the names given to law enforcement devices. They're, they're never named something like, you know, the traffic safety device or something, right? This was the police officer using the stalker dual DSR. <laughs> so... This police officer's got the stalker dual DSR, much better than the stalker singular uh, DSR, one can only assume. Uh, and uh, the officer was using that to check the speed of cars driving past him. As one does. Um, as one does. Uh, and then he, he came to court and he gave some uh, very general evidence about uh, the uh, use of the radar device. Um, he said that... Uh, uh, he was operating the radar device that was a stalker dual DSR. He said he tested it at the start of his shift and was satisfied that it was working properly. That was really the extent of it. Mm -hmm. um, and the Supreme Court judge, and the, I should say the appeal, was in part challenging whether that was sufficient to establish that this radar dual stalker DSR was functioning properly to determine the speed of the accused. And so the Supreme Court uh, judge reviewed some of the law concerning what evidence is required for the admissibility of radar evidence uh, and pointed out that uh, from previous decisions that evidence should include 
uh, evidence that the person was properly qualified to operate the radar device, that it was functioning properly, that its accuracy was that was accuracy was tested using whatever tests are required for it, that the testing procedures indicated the equipment was working properly, uh, and that the test indicated the equipment was capable of registering the speed of an alleged offending vehicle. So various um, elements to what should be uh, proven if you're going to rely upon a radar device to prove somebody was speeding. Uh, now, in this case, the evidence on those points was pretty brief, right? It's, sort of, it's what I've indicated previously. It didn't meticulously go through those points. Yes. Um, but the Supreme Court judge found that the, uh, the judicial justice that convicted the man of speeding, uh, that that could be upheld. And the judge pointed to the fact that uh, that evidence, that, although brief, <laughs> about uh, the way the thing worked and the uh, qualifications of the person who operated it, wasn't challenged, right? So he gave, the police officer gave very brief evidence about being qualified to use it and that the thing worked and he did some testing on it without necessarily getting into all of the elements about, you know, what was the procedure for that and what was recommended and, you know, was the thing capable of doing those things. But because that they weren't, that wasn't challenged in any way at the trial, the Supreme Court judge found that uh, that was sufficient. So I think the takeaway from the case is that there is a regime of uh, the kind of evidence that should be led to rely upon uh, radar readings to prove speeding. Uh, but uh, if you have some brief evidence about that and then you don't do anything to challenge it or ask any questions about it, that's likely to be found to be sufficient. So uh, it's, uh, I think, a, an interesting case because it's one that, uh, frankly, will probably uh, affect many more uh, people's regular lives than uh, some of the other uh, perhaps more serious allegations that we talk about from time to time. Indeed. Uh, we've got 50 seconds left in the segment today, Michael. What would you like to leave with us for 2020? Yeah, I think the takeaway for the last 50 seconds would be a comparison of how the Canadian justice system carefully considers things like even wrongful convictions for speeding in contrast with what's happening at the moment in China. And one of the things we just saw in China was a conviction of a, a journalist uh, who's also a lawyer yes. uh, for the offense of picking quarrels and provoking trouble. Mm. Uh, and that was for uh, her taking video and photos of the uh, tragedy in Wuhan at the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. She was just sentenced to four years in jail. Mm. Uh, and to give some further context, I looked at the uh, some statistics about the rate of convictions in China. And if you're charged with an offense in China, your probability of conviction is 99.93%. In 2014, there were 1.16 million people charged with criminal offenses in China. And all of them, bar 825, were convicted. Wow. So quite a contrast with uh, our criminal justice system in Canada. We are very lucky to live here, uh, even in a year like 2020. Imagine the resolve required to be defense counsel in a system like that, knowing one will lose almost every time. 99.93%. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure.